it's great to be here and talk about something that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, I might say that I did not boil down eight hours of lectures into one hour. That would have been painful, too painful for me. And actually today I'm going to talk about one bit of stuff that I talked about uh, or developed earlier this year. But the second half is actually something new, something that I did not uh, talk about in my, my earlier uh, travels on this subject uh, on faith and science. And uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm mindful, oh, just as a reminder, I do have a bibliography that I've put out here. There's some over here on the table. Those are some of the resources I used in, in, in putting this together. And also and there are some uh, websites that uh, talk about the subject of faith and science. Uh, each, each different group has a slightly different interpretation, if you will, of, uh, of Genesis, for example, which is the big topic. Most of this is about evolution and, and creation. Different, different orientations, but uh, that also might be something you'd like to have if you want to start surfing on the Internet sometime, find a place to start to learn more about this. Uh, I was going to say, oh, I, uh, you may remember, probably don't, that uh, Matthew uh, gave a sermon back in June on this topic. Uh, it was one of the uh, apolog- questions, uh, apologetic questions uh, that what Christians get asked about Christianity, and one was, doesn't, hasn't science disproved the Bible. It was that type of a jarring statement that uh, people make sometimes to us. And so I kind of want to go back to that and uh, really address, uh, well, two questions, but the second's related to the first. The question is, where's the conflict? Uh, that seems like it would be obvious. Well, we'll see how obvious it is. Uh, but uh, the, the second question is really related to the first. And as I think as we answer the first, we'll begin to see how the second comes into play. And that is, does the Bible teach science? So actually, uh, look at that question. We can't get a comprehensive answer to that question. But maybe we can identify some tools and some questions we can ask to begin, when we look at passages of Scripture, to see if we can get an answer to the question for a specific text. And we'll be looking at uh, Genesis chapter 1 as we look at that second question. Uh, Okay, so those are the two questions, but I do have uh, a third objective aim here, and and that is uh, a greater respect and love of my brother or sister in Christ who may not always understand God's word the way I do. We know there's a spectrum of thinking, understanding about such things as the creation story, uh, how we understand evolution, for example. Not all of us are going to be on the same page, but at least we can keep the faith. That's what Paul calls us to keep the faith. Jesus says we must love one another. That's the characteristics of the church. The early church had a lot more issues going for it than we do today. Uh, And they were able to show the love of Christ and how they they live, live together and this is our baseline objective as we as we study these kinds of topics. And at the minimum, we maybe understand what makes the person beside us tick before maybe we didn't understand so well why he thinks the things or she thinks the things that, that she thinks. So let's not lose sight of that. Is there a conflict? Well, definitely there is a conflict. And uh, here's a couple quotes to kind of make the point. Uh, this is a famous quote from George Gaylord Simpson, Uh, made quite a number of years ago. 
Uh, man is the result of a purposeless and natural process that did not have him in mind. Uh, jarring statement, right? Uh, here's another. Uh, Francisco Ayala actually is a pretty renowned uh, evolutionary geneticist. Uh, you wouldn't know him, but if you're in that field, you would think highly of him. He's the member of the National Academy of Sciences. One of his articles, he says the following, it was Darwin's greatest com- accomplishment to show that the directive organization of living beings can be explained as a result of a natural process, natural selection, without any need to resort to a creator or other external agent. So statements that say the human race and, and life forms in general is the product of an unguided and natural process. Well, that's one voice, but there is another voice we hear, uh, uh, not on, as well, kind of at the other end of the spectrum. And let me just uh, uh, give you an example of that. Uh, the message is the Bible provides the only authentic, accurate account of the origin of life and the human race. And uh, Ken Ham is one of those representatives of that view and answers in Genesis. This is just a quote from one of his articles. Christians who compromise with evolution and or millions of years are encouraging others toward unbelief concerning God's word and the gospel. For Ken Ham, the stakes are very high. The authority of scripture and even the belief in the gospel are at stake in how we understand uh, and how we interpret uh, the messages in Genesis and how we think about evolution and its truthfulness or, or falseness of it. So, uh, okay, there is a conflict. But before going further, I think we need to step back and look at some words and what their meanings are. Uh, what do we mean by faith? And what do we mean by science? Okay, if we don't understand what those words mean, it's going to be hard for us to understand the conflict between the two. So I want to talk a little bit about those two terms and then come back to the conflict. So faith we can understand firstly as trust. Uh, It's directed toward a person to trust that God speaks true words and importantly to entrust ourselves to him, that is to believe in him. Uh, But faith is also directed toward our rationality. God gives us reasons to believe in him. And it's because of those reasons that we can be persuaded to believe in him. And there are many scriptures that have these evidences of God's trustability. Uh, And I'll give you just one uh, to... uh, which you would quickly recall, this is in John 10, and Jesus is speaking to his audience, uh, who is not, uh, it's not going well in this particular exchange. And Jesus says, if I am not doing the words of my father, the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Jesus, I'm giving you example. I'm giving you evidence of of who I am. Faith can be understood in a different way, and that is those truths that Christians believe. 
And I've uh, given uh, a list of those. Uh, the Bible teaches there is one God, the incarnation of Christ, the gospel of salvation, God's promise for sanctification and eternal life. Uh, and in Scripture, there's are references to this. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. He says later, be nourished by the word of the faith. So, so faith is something, is an element of trust, it's an element of belief, it's truths that we have our confidence in. And at the end of the day, we accept the faith, those truths, by exercising trusting faith in him who is trustable. So it comes together in actually, I would say, a very mysterious way of how our faith develops. Well, faith is sometimes referred to in a more encompassing word. And that word is worldview, a term that I'm sure that you've heard. So our faith is a kind of a worldview. Now, what do we mean by worldview? Uh, So worldview would encompass religion, and talking about religion in a general way, such as the beliefs in Christianity, or if you're not a religious person, a set of beliefs. All right. Here's a definition by James Sire, which I thought was quite good. He says, a a worldview is a commitment that can be expressed in a story or in a set of presuppositions which we hold about the basic constitution of reality. It provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. And he gives three elements of worldview. It says it includes elements from the culture and our society that makes up our worldview. It includes religious texts, the Bible, and includes our personal views, actually our personal philosophy. Those three bits together largely encompass what a worldview might be. So let's look at each one of those. Uh, The first of them is uh, presuppositions. And uh, those are things that you assume to be true, but you can't prove, all right? And the thing is, with a worldview, they, they could be true, but they might only be partially true. They could be false. So your presuppositions, you have them, but they may may not be true. Uh, it's a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart. And Sire says that we could be conscious of this, but many are unconscious of our worldview. They're un- unconscious of what they're committed to, where they, where they have their being, so to speak. And they can be inconsistent in how they practice their worldview. That's people, right? Uh, the big part of this, really, the big bit is culture and uh, we've heard people say, well, culture is kind of like the air that we breathe. Well, in many ways, that's it. We, we breathe it. We're not even aware of it. Yet, it's influencing our lives, and that comes in little bits and pieces here and there. And uh, it's part of our language. Words powerfully reflect a worldview. And we, you know, we kind of live it, live out those words. It starts early in our life. In, in childhood, our worldview is being formed. And uh, Sire says that for many people, it's unquestioned through their entire life. So worldview is an interesting thing, the way we live it, the way we uh, experience it and absorb it into our lives. We also have a personal philosophy, and that also is powerfully impacted by our parents and significant people in our lives. So, you know, parents parent whether they like it or not. They're going to influence their kids one way or the other. Uh, Our personal philosophy can change. And that 
and it probably can change more easily than the impact of worldview on our culture. Uh, let me give you an example of, of a worldview, pretty simple one. The question would be to ask someone, what existed before the universe came into being? <clears throat> one person might say, well, some other source of energy or material from someplace else. All right. That, that would be the answer. That would be a naturalistic view, a naturalistic explanation. There would be some other material or power or, or process that was occurring naturally that gave rise to the being of our universe. Another person would say, well, it was something external to the universe. must have been present. This would be, this smacks of a supernatural view. There's something outside that was responsible, was there before the universe came into being. So there would be two worldviews uh, that are much different in how they view the reality of the world around them. All right. Uh, <clears throat> worldviews can change. Let's go back. Uh, most of us uh, have seen this transition from modernism to what's now called postmodernism. Uh, modernism says there is a truth and it can be known, and truths can be absolute. And certainly in science, science is on this page, the laws of science, and you can figure out something and know what it is. Uh, Also, moral law. This really, in our Western society, powerfully comes through the influence of Christianity in saying there is moral absolutes that came from a God, and this is what we live by. That's really a lot of the thinking of modernism. Postmodernism has changed. It says truth, truth is relative. It's not absolute. And in fact, it becomes very individualistic. You can decide truth for yourself. You've heard people say, tell us your truth. You know, well, you got your truth, I have my truth. A much different perspective, a different worldview than we had a generation, even a generation ago, a different worldview that's permeated our, our society provides a foundation on which we live and move and have our being. It's a, it's a very strong statement. And the thing is, not only do we have a worldview, but actually scientists have uh, worldviews as, as well. And uh, let's go back to uh, a couple of those uh, statements that we saw earlier and if we look at, at these statements, man is the result of a purposeless, natural process that did not have him in mind. How would you describe that worldview in a sentence? <clears throat> or in a phrase? It's depressing. It's depressing. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's, it's emotional. Yeah. But what, what's the perspective? What is his pers- perspective? Okay, it could influence the way science is done. Okay. That's a great... Yeah, that's a great observation of, of worldview inappropriately impacting science. What is that worldview, by the way? <laughs> It's naturalism. It's materialism. Mm-hmm. It's a materialistic worldview. 
through the lens of a worldview in which only the natural world exists. Yeah, and we'll hopefully get back to Paul's, Paul's point. It's an important one. Let's look at a theistic worldview for contrast. Okay, here's a couple bullet points on what a theistic view might entail. Theistic would be belief in God, right? So it's not limited to a naturalistic perspective. It might include a naturalistic perspective, but it would include a supernatural perspective. And the, the real possibility those things can overlap. That might be part of a, of a theistic worldview. It depends on how one believes God interacts with the world. Uh, God acts directly. That would be through his supernatural agency, right? God acts indirectly, and we might see that's through his providential agency. So he works through the laws of nature, through the processes of nature, to affect his purposes. Some, some would say God only acts indirectly. He does not act supernaturally. Some would say both. Some would say both. So the theism is going to vary a little bit in terms of, of that worldview. It's not uh, monochromatic. Uh, and importantly, it depends on the interpretive framework of scripture that people use to form that worldview of how God interacts with his, his creation. If you look back at the quote from Ken Ham, we might conclude that he interprets scripture to be authoritative on every topic that scripture talks about. Now, Ham is, is he's, he's absolutely correct in the preeminence he puts in the authority of scripture. And, and that's to be commended for that. But there are other scholars which also hold high the authority of scriptures, but they use a different interpretive framework than he does. And we'll, we'll talk more about that uh, as well. So our question, where is the conflict? Uh, are we creatures of accident? Or are we products of the divine purpose of a sovereign creator? Can science distinguish between those two perspectives? So that begs the question, doesn't it? What is science? Uh, what can science do and, and what isn't science? Uh, so, sadly, science has become a difficult thing to describe. Uh, scientists don't describe, don't define science. It's defined mostly by uh, philosophers of science. Uh, science historians are the ones that's their their job. And the difficulty is the different kinds of science. Each one has its own methods and techniques. They're not the same. Uh, here's one definition a systematic way of studying nature involving observation, experimentation, and reasoning about physical phenomena. So that gives us an idea of what it's like. Uh, I, I appreciate this a little bit better in what, what goes into a scientific conclusion. He says, every conclusion of science involves components of three kinds, presuppositions, evidence, and logic. Uh, these are all important to to be to appreciate as we begin looking at what science does. Of course, evidence is the big thing for science. We look at the evidence and we draw conclusions. You know, it's an objective process. Uh, and it's anything we can observe by our five senses or extension of our sciences, right? All that fancy uh, equipment that's designed to help, help us uh, see things better, detect things better. Uh, but there's different kinds of science, and that's where it gets complicated. There's experimental science, there's observational science, there's theoretical science, 
there's historical science, and, and they all work in, in different ways. Uh, a logical inference is what we might see as a conclusion, a judgment based on the evidence. So that's how we get to a conclusion by, by using logic. But different scientists employ different kinds of, of logic. So in experimental science, like uh, chemistry or biology, the kind of work I worked in, it's more of inductive reasoning, where you reason from the specific to the general. All right, That's more of the logical conclusion that you, that you draw. You, you apply the specific to the general. In theoretical science, it's the other way around. You make a grandiose statement, and then you show how everything shows that's true. It's more deductive reasoning. And then in historical sciences, like archaeology or, or evolution, for example, or even elements of geology, it's yet another reasoning process called abductive reasoning, A-B, abductive reasoning. And you may or may not have heard that term before, but you've sure seen it in action, and that's in the courtroom, where who did it? And what we're seeing is evidence is being produced. You know, We're looking for evidence at the scene, who was at the scene of the crime, and what, what was the elements of the crime that committed the crime, who were the witnesses. All this stuff is brought together to get evidence to come to the best inference of what happened. You're looking, in the, looking at the evidence and going back to see what happened. It's called abductive, abductive reasoning. So different kinds of reasoning occur in science, And also, importantly, science is presuppositions. And a presupposition is simply a belief that is necessary in order for any hypothesis to be meaningful or true. And the thing is, with presuppositions, there's no way to prove or disprove uh, a presupposition. For example, the physical world is real, and I can detect it with my senses. Well, that is something that we kind of live with day by day, but that's a presupposition. And believe it or not, there's a group of people that philosophically reject that. So it is a presupposition of science, and you have to kind of assume that in the work that you're doing to draw any meaningful conclusions from the work that you're doing. Uh, now, there's a further qualification for science I want to <coughs> mention here, and this is important to this, this point about the conflict and that's something called methodological naturalism. Uh, it's a lot of syllables. What's all that about? Well, it simply means to be scientific, a theory must explain all phenomena by natural causes. That's all it means. Uh, but by definition, it excludes non-material causes. For example, the supernatural. Science says, well, we can't. Science can't go there. We can't do that. And <clears throat> there are implications for this definition of science to be methodological naturalism. And, and one outcome is it could include exclude hypotheses that might be actual better definitions of the phenomena that are being observed. Uh, and simply reclassifying an explanation as non-scientific, doesn't refute the explanation. It simply says it's a different explanation than we can discern by our definition of science. It's an important point that the definition of science excludes observations that could be legitimate, 
And simply saying it's non-scientific doesn't mean it's not true. And what is most, I think, uh, the biggest risk to this is in terms of our what we know to be true. It limits our ability to know what is true. If we simply think everything that is known can be known is through science, we may limit our ability to know what's true. So that's, that is a kind of a, a critical point in the definition of science. Today, this is the way science is defined. It hasn't always been defined that way. Uh, but uh, that's what we have. And <clears throat> so I want to give a little example to see how worldview and science interact. I'll give you a better feel for science working and worldview working. And uh, the example I'm going to give is where did the baby come from? And so we're going to interview an embryologist, and we're going to interview uh, the parents of uh, a new child, a new baby. So <clears throat> we go to the uh, laboratory, the embryologist, and we say, where did, where did, who, where did babies come from? And uh, his eyes, uh, he's excited because this is all he does. And uh, so he takes us through a, a brief two-hour PowerPoint presentation on this. <laughs> But, you know, he takes us through these incredible steps. We have this fertilized egg. The cells begin to divide, and then they begin to migrate, and then they begin to differentiate. And he talks about molecular signals that are turned on in some cells to do one thing, and they're turned off in other cells so they can do something else. The cells begin, they don't look the same anymore. They're changing. Uh, They go through what's called differentiation. Uh, Within just weeks, uh, we find that tissues are beginning to form. Uh, cells aggregate together, called muscle cells. Something called a nerve cell differentiates, and the mu- muscle cells begin to beat. We have something called a heart. Uh, organs are formed. They migrate in different places. And this extraordinary process occurs in a mere 39 weeks. And at that point, uh, a baby is born, and... Uh, the, the embryologist will let us know that we're still scratching the surface and understanding all this happens. But don't forget, this started with one fertilized egg, and uh, all the information in that egg produced this over 39 weeks. Absolutely incredible. You go to the parents and ask them the same question, and, and they just light up and say, what's a gift of the Lord? Uh, our baby is the work of the Lord. And, of course, you're familiar with this psalm, Psalm 139. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And verse 16, I think, is, is particularly significant. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. This is a much different kind of a statement than the embryologist would have told you about where a baby comes from. Just a whole different, whole different message. Who's right? Both, both are saying something that's true, aren't they? They're both saying something that's true. That's correct. And this, this is, I think, is the, big, is the big way to think about a distinction between worldview and science, that, that worldview is asking the why questions, the purpose questions. You knew me before my days were, before my days, before I was formed, you knew my days and knew how they were numbered. 
purpose, my adult, my identity, if you will, personalizing this. Science, it, it really, it cannot really get to these questions. It's really the how questions, how things happen, how, how, things, how things work. But we understand this is all under God's dominion. Uh, he has, he is the one that's the author uh, of, of both, both the how and the why, if you will. And this, I think, is, is really at the crux of the issue in this, in this question of science and worldview, that the, the, the scientific process really can't inform us in terms of worldview. It does not have the capability of doing that. If you look back at these conflicting statements that we saw early in, in the talk, we see the primary a conflict of worldviews. And in the case of the person who has a naturalistic worldview, he's using the results to, to support a worldview, but the science doesn't prove the worldview. He's simply using it uh, for his purposes. The worldviews are the ones that are primarily in conflict in those statements. The church has always understood that God has revealed himself to us in in two ways, what we call his spatial revelation, that would be scripture, but also in his his, uh, general revelation, and that would be his creation in nature. And uh, we we see his authority that's expressed in both ways. And scripture talks about this numerous places. The church has recognized this. And uh, I wanted to share uh, an excerpt from one of the early uh, Reformation statements that came out of the 16th century. This is from the Belgic uh, Confession, which uh, speaks to this point. <clears throat> we know God by two means. Uh, first, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God. Second, God makes himself known to us more clearly by his holy and divine word as much as we need in this life for God's glory and for our salvation. Almost poetic statement as far as I'm concerned. Uh, So there you go. That's, That's pretty clear cut. But there is an intermediary step that where we can stumble. And that intermediary step is we have to interpret what God has revealed. And here we begin to deal with the second level of the conflict. How do we interpret the explanations of science, the conclusions of science? And how do we interpret the teachings of Scripture? Uh, Vern Poitras is a, a biblical scholar at uh, Westminster Seminary up in, in Philadelphia. And he's quite interested in this subject. And understandably, he has PhDs in both theology and in science and mathematics and uh, has written a lot on this topic. And his one quote that I have from one of his books that I thought was uh, particularly cogently captured the issue, uh, I wanted to share that with you. Uh, he says, in the case of apparent discrepancies between the Bible and science, we must therefore be ready to re-examine both our thinking about the Bible and our thinking about science. But the Bible is always right and should be trusted on that account. 
Likewise, God's word concerning providence, guiding power, such as guiding power in nature, is always right and trustworthy. But modern science, as a human interpretation of God's providence, may make mistakes. Our interpretation of providence may need revision. Scientific theories aren't always right. Okay? But he says, finally, and our interpretation of the Bible may need uh, revision. So then we ask ourselves, does science have its interpretations right on subjects such as uh, evolution or cosmology? And do we have our interpretations right on subjects, on passages in scripture that talk about science? Do we have our interpretations correct? Well, that's, that's a big question. We could have several lectures and discussions on that, I think, uh, this fall. Uh, there's a lot to cover there. But I wanted to just pare that down and, and talk about this question of does the Bible teach science? And uh, we'll look at Genesis chapter 1 to, to examine that and uh, see where we get. Hopefully we can get some, some ideas of how we can approach that question as we look at specific passages of Scripture. And I want to start, uh, step back again and ask a question. There's a method to my madness, believe me. And here's a phrase, do you know what time it is? Okay, so what, what, what does that mean? Do you know what time it is? <laughs> Seven after 11. My clock's a couple. You said it's how many you need <laughs> <laughs> That's good, that's good. <laughs> so let's, let's imagine a scenario it's about 6 o'clock in the morning, and a man is rushing up to a bus stop, almost out of breath. There's some people standing there, and he says, do you know what time it is? What do you think was the intent of the man in saying that phrase? Why did he say that? Has the bus gone yet? Exactly. You want to know his bus, right? <laughs> Obviously, if it was, they wouldn't be there if, if their bus had gone. But he wanted to know if his bus is there. Is he too late? Good. Right. Okay. Now let's uh, consider the gentleman is now sitting in a chair in his living room. About 8 o'clock in the evening, he's reading an article in a magazine, and his 7-year-old son is on the floor playing with Legos. And he says to his son, do you know what time it is? It's about 8 o'clock. Do you know what time it is? Time for bed. Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> and you know how that goes. Well, uh, <clears throat> third example, it's about uh, 6.30 in the evening, on a Sunday evening, uh, in January, a Sunday evening in January, and there's a same gentleman sitting in a chair with some friends in front of a 70-inch TV, black, and they're all wearing green and he says, do you know what time it is? Exactly. <laughs> the Super Bowl, right, exactly. Well, these are all very recognizable settings that uh, we, we can imagine. But we see that the words didn't mean the same thing in the different settings. They had a different meaning. Uh, we needed to know the setting. We needed to know who the speaker, what hat the speaker was wearing, so to speak, 
We need to know who the audience was. We understand what he said, what he meant when he said this, right? That's part of biblical interpretation, you know. What does the text mean? And it gets more complicated as we read the Bible. It's a different culture. We talked about settings in our culture. It was a different culture, a totally different language, and different uh, different ways of writing, you know, different genres, if you will. These are some of the things that we face when we begin to interpret biblical passages. So let me give you an example of this before we delve into to Genesis. And this is one that you're probably familiar with. And this is the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus is speaking uh, uh, to uh, his audience. And he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. Now I have to ask you the question, is the mustard seed the smallest of all seeds? It's not. It's not. You look up in Wikipedia, you'll find the, the smallest seed, the orchid seed. So, but let's, let's stop a minute before we get too concerned here. Uh, who was his audience? It was people that lived in 2,000 years ago in an agrarian culture. Uh, and mustard plants were very common in their life. The people were farmers or shepherds, or they depended on farmers and shepherds to live, so that was a pretty common thing. Uh, what do you think was the intent of Jesus' teaching? What was his point in this parable? Uh huh. And what was that finished product that he was teaching about? The kingdom of God. He was trying to help them understand something, something called the kingdom of God. Well, what's that? You know, I can't touch it. I can't see it. What are you talking about? Jesus was teaching something that was very difficult to understand. It says, as much as they could understand. As much as they could understand. What if Jesus had said, the kingdom of God is like an orchid seed, the smallest of all seeds? That wouldn't work. Orchid seeds don't even grow in the Middle East. They grow in jungles, you know? So that, that wouldn't work, okay? So why did he bring up, again, he brought up the mustard seed as a referent, something that they were aware of, that they could understand. They knew all about that tiny little seed and how it made a big plant. And they said, oh, whatever this kingdom of God is, it's like that. It starts very small and encompasses everything. And that was something they could ponder, they could think about. So Jesus wasn't teaching botany. He was teaching about the kingdom of God. And he was using a reference they could understand. So the revelation to them, the revelation, the authority, lies in the kingdom of God. But the, the bit about the mustard seed, Jesus is accommodating himself to his audience so they can understand what he's revealing to them. 
So the mustard seed, it's not about science, it's about accommodation so we can understand what he's teaching to us. So here the science is not a scientific fact, it's a reference to understand what the Bible is really trying to tell us is true. So that, that's an important distinction, and let's see, carry that over as we look at uh, the book of Genesis. It's a, it's a difficult chapter, it is a unique genre in all the Bible. Uh, many will say it's poetry, but it's not. Uh, say it's, it's prose. It is prose, but it could be better described as an elevated prose. Some have called it, well, I haven't got it right here. I'll, in the later slide, I'll say that. The grammar is very important. Of course, it's in Hebrew, and a lot of that goes over our head. We're stuck with whatever translation that we read. Uh, there's a lot of uh, structure within the The chapter will talk about the audience, of course. This would be an audience of uh, a different culture than ours. And we must remember that uh, scripture is almost always written to a specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose. God is revealing himself to his people at that place and time in his process as a a redemptive plan uh, for us. And so... Uh, what it meant to them is going to be important in terms of understanding what it might mean to us as well. And of course, we said it's a different culture. They have a different language, different social structures, different values. It's just uh, very hard for us with our 21st century culture to look back into people's way of thinking and viewing things. And, uh, but we have to get that was the intent of the author and what he's teaching uh, what are the things that are being used to help us understand the main message? And this is something that I've always alluded to, and many of you would tell me that the scripture was not written to us, but scripture is written for us. It was origin- written originally to another people at another time, but scripture is incredible in its having eternal messages for us even today. And that's the two things we have to fetter out as we read it. So let me just, uh, time is short. Uh, We'll just quickly look at the literature. I just want to give you just a little flavor of that. We're not going to dwell on it. As I said, uh, some have called it a ceremonial uh, prose or a priestly prose, an elevated prose. And that is because of of the structure, the structure that's in the first chapter. And just one thing that's interesting is how the way seven, number seven, is used many times uh, in the first chapter. There's seven Hebrew words in the first and second verses. Uh, the uh, six days have seven elements, and those are reoccurring elements that occur in each day. You'll find all seven elements in each of the six days. The seventh day is completely different. It's three Hebrew sentences of seven words. And there's also parallelism that occurs also within the six days in terms of day one and three parallels with four and six. So you see all this structure, and you have to conclude at a minimum there's something going on here more than just telling a story. There's more going on here than just telling a story. It's something to have. It's not like a scientific paper or an article you read in the newspaper or even how we read the story of Jacob, you know, for example. This is a different kind of a story. He went to great lengths to do all this. Uh, Gordon Wenham is an 
Old Testament scholar uh, that has spent some time looking at uh, ancient Near East literature or other creation stories beside the story of Genesis, and some of those predate uh, the writing of Genesis, if you will. And this is valuable to do because you get an insight into how the cultures thought uh, at the time of, of, the, of the Jewish people, the cultures around them. How did they look at things? How did they think about their world? And uh, so I want to just, these are two, two old uh, stories. One is Babylonian, one is Sumerian. And so I'm, we're going to pull some high-level things out of the first chapter. There's even more to be pulled out as you go further into Genesis. But, uh, of course, the big theme there is polytheism. These stories always have many gods that are involved in various conversations and fighting and and whatnot that's going on. Uh, The uh, man gets created, but he's not really a focus of the creation. He's he's kind of just, you know, part of the the whole play out of things. In fact, in one of the stories, they decided that they needed man so they could have food. The gods needed food. They were tired of foraging for food for themselves, so man's there to supply food for the gods. And this, this is in the story. I'm not making this up. So, but this was not necessarily unknown to the Hebrew people. I mean, they lived in Egypt. Abraham came from Samaria. Many of them could have known these stories, right? So what did we, lead, what did we learn in Genesis? Well, of course, the big one is monotheism. There is one God, one creator. And this comes through powerfully in the first chapter of Genesis. Uh, man is the climax of, of creation, day six. It's very good after man is created. Not only that, but God says, you're made in my image. And although Genesis 1 doesn't tell us exactly what that means, you know, we can piece together part of what that means to be in the image of God. Uh, And I won't go into that, but importantly, uh, Man has a purpose other than providing food for the gods. In fact, God supplies the food to man. He creates all the plants for man to eat. We tell explicitly in the first chapter of Genesis. But importantly, man has a purpose, and that is to be God's vice regent. He is to live on earth and care for God's creation. He's like God's right-hand man and taking care of the creation that he has just produced uh, for us. So we see that that if you look at the messages of Genesis, they're dramatically different than that in the cultures around the ancient Hebrews. Uh, And I think it's so easy for us to lose track of that. We tend to ask different questions when we look at the first chapter of Genesis. But these are the ones that definitely would come through, uh, and there are others. But then what else can we get from from, uh, the first chapter of Genesis? Uh, what about the uh, creation week and those creation days? Uh, is, is this a, an account of how God created? Well, let's look at that just a little bit, and we'll start by looking at uh, the days. And I'll say this, these days are unusual. I'll say that. I won't say more than that. So, for example, in the first three days, there was evening, there was morning, and this is described for every all six days. Same phrase, but there's no sun until the fourth day. You have to admit, that's, a, that's an unusual day. Okay, day six, depending upon how you interpret scripture, is a really long day. Most people, 
at least evangelical scholars, look at Genesis 2 and 3, and they say, well, that is kind of an expansion of the sixth day. So day six day says that God created male and female, created them in his image. And then day two, the second story, is like an expansion of what happened. You know, we learn about Adam, we learn about Eve, and all the things that happened, you know, Lots of head name all the animals. A lot of things happened. If you take that interpretation, day six is a long day. Now, I just say as an aside that some don't look at it that way. They say day Genesis 2 and 3 is a later account of creation. Something happened after the creation week. All I can say is that presents a new set of interpretive challenges to think through the significance of what that means. So we'll take this one for now. And then day seven is also an unusual day. It has no end. Day seven has no end. And uh, so what do we make of that? And that actually is, is very significant, and I realize I have no time to talk about that. But I think the key thing here is the word rested doesn't mean that God took a break. That God does not grow weary. The scripture tells us that. Jesus says, my father is always working but rather it means that God ceased from his creative activity and took on his, his role as the ruler of, of his creation. And that idea is developed throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And another time, you know, I'd love to talk about that whole idea that's there. But we find the days are unusual days. Uh, and then if we look at uh, some of the, the science of it, if you will, that's also challenging. We already said we have days with no sun, and that's hard to understand because we know our days are determined by the rotation of the earth against the sun. Day six is interesting because it's uh, looking at it through the eyes of a scientist. You say this is a very unusual taxonomy. Uh, living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts. Uh, why why uh, single out the livestock? And where do you put the dogs? Where do you put the dogs in here? In other words... This seems like a very odd grouping of animals if you're talking, looking at this from a tra- standpoint of, of science. So the science doesn't gel well uh, as you begin to read through this. In fact, if you read through it in a, in a plain way, looking at the descriptors of, of the Earth uh, and the cosmos, you come up with something that looks like this. This is actually a, a diagram that Matthew uh, McNutt showed in his sermon. So I, I put it back up uh, since you, you may or may not remember it, but that's okay. But the idea is that this is, does not look like the universe and the earth that we're familiar with. And, uh, but as, as we think about, about the unusual character of the days, about the scientific uh, questionable statements that are made, uh, we begin to ask the question, is, is Moses really trying to teach his audience what the world looks like? Or is he instead trying to use pictures that they're familiar with so he can teach those big messages that we just talked about in terms of who is God? Who am I? What's my relationship? What's my purpose here? What am I to do with my life? Those big messages, are these ways of conveying those messages to them pictures that they might be familiar with, what they've heard, at least in the cultures around them, and perhaps they, this is common knowledge to, to the Jews, 
uh, I really appreciated this comment by uh, John Calvin, the reformer from the 16th century. Calvin wrote commentaries, including one on Genesis, and he says, Moses wrote in a popular style that all ordinary persons are able to understand. Well, I think Calvin had, a, had an insight here into uh, understanding what Moses' aims were in his writing and how to get his points across so the man on the street, so to speak, could understand what Moses was uh, teaching them. And if we go back to some of these statements that we've looked about, we see that Moses has, has other aims in mind in some of the things that he talks about. So let's look at uh, day four. He does not name the sun or the moon. Remember, there were moon gods and sun gods. So as soon as you talk about the moon, they're going to think moon god. As soon as you think sun, sun god. So Moses doesn't even mention their names. He just says the orbs in the sky. What he mostly talks about is what they do, what they're there for, what's their function. And interestingly, he says, let them serve as signs to mark sacred times. Well, what's that all about? What are sacred times? Well, doesn't this refer to the festivals and the special days that the Jews have when they worship their Lord? And so he's talking here about how this creation relates to them, the hearers. How does it relate to them? Day six, we talked about the livestock. Why signal out the livestock? Well, this is an agrarian culture. What could be more important? Well, maybe seeds. (laughs) But livestock is like incredibly important for their existence. And it says God provided these livestock for you. That's part of his creation. God cares for you. And of course, day seven, day seven, God rules us. He's not just a creator, but he rules us. So we begin to see how Moses, in his chapter, is talking about how God relates to them. It's very personal. Uh, John Walton uh, written this very interesting book called The Lost uh, World of Genesis. And uh, he asked the question, what does it mean for something to exist? And I'll, I'll skip over my favorite example in the interest of time. Uh, to, uh, to say that he said that we must remember that things can exist two ways. They can exist materially and they can exist functionally. So uh, a restaurant is a material thing. It serves food. It has a function. But if you close the restaurant, the building's still there, but function no longer exists, Right? We can see functionality and material nature in that example, but in our culture, most of the time, when we talk about making something or creating something, we think about it in a material way, right? In those cultures, they thought about things mostly in a functional way, how something functions within a system or in a culture, within a society, all right? And so Walton does this analysis of writings of other uh, documents that are contemporary with that of Genesis. And he says, creation accounts thus constituted bringing order to the cosmos from an originally non-functional condition. He said, we think to think of the cosmos as a machine, argue whether someone is running the machine or not, right? We have heard that. The ancient world viewed the cosmos more like a company or a kingdom. 
they thought of existence as defined by having function in an ordered system, as I said. So Walton asked the question, well, okay, I get that from those writings. What about, what about Genesis? So he does an analysis of uh, the word create in the Old Testament. The word create is this uh, Hebrew word, uh, B-A-R-A, bara, I guess. And uh, it occurs 50 times in the Old Testament. And very interestingly, God, only God creates. Only God baras. Man never baras. You'll never see man creating in the Old Testament. That's unique to what God does. That's not controversial. Everybody, that's, that's out there. But his analysis is what's fascinating because he looked to see now, could this be a functional creation or could there be a material creation when the word is used? And he says, no text require a material perspective of creation, the 50 times it's used. He says, most contexts require a functional understanding. In other words, God is creating in a functional way. He's not creating in a material way. There are, some amb- there are ambiguous contexts you know, where you can't tell which it would be. But he says, importantly, never are materials mentioned in a creative act. And he said, you would never need materials for a functional creation. The materials are already there. So he, he concludes, he says, creation only means to create in a functional way. Okay, maybe not every case, but the idea of functional creation permeates the Old Testament and how that word is used. But this is important in understanding what Genesis then is uh, talking about. That Genesis then is primarily interested in God's inferring of functionality and purpose to the cosmos. And this is what Moses is revealing to the people in this chapter. It's God that's given purpose and meaning to all the things around you. The science then is of little importance in what God is revealing, what Moses is revealing to his audience. In other words, the science, as we call it science, is God accommodating himself again through Moses to his people so they understand the revelatory messages of the book of, or the chapter, chapter Genesis 1. And of course, lastly, in uh, day seven, uh, the day with no end, that God is is ruling on his throne. So uh, to summarize then this second bit about science and faith, uh, science and worldview encompass different domains. Science particularly is looking at the what and the how. Worldview is primarily, primarily interested in the who and the why. And this is where I think the conflicts are really most prominent within our culture, where a secular worldview is conflicting with a theistic or Christian worldview on how to explain things, how to explain the results of science, for example. But science, there are messages in the Bible that include scientific topics. How do we handle those? And I would say we have to look at each text on its own and look at it carefully as to what it's saying. What bit of this is being revealed to us and what part of the message is accommodating itself to us so we can understand what uh, that revelation is. And that's it. Thank you. <laughs>